Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kosima Ali. Hi, I'm Hatem Aldawi, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Priya Ahmed, and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bashar Malik, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tanya Hardcastle. And you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hey, what's going on? It is Sly King, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Lydia Kirkland, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Abigail Chewitt, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. folks welcome back to bereavement room podcast i hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world as always thank you so much for tuning in i hope that season three uh, has been insightful so far and that you're getting a lot of value from it i certainly have enjoyed hosting all of the conversations it's been an absolutely brilliant season Um, Today is a break in the usual format, you know that I usually do my one-on-one interviews with bereaved people, um, but there's a break in the usual format today because there's something important that needs to be addressed. We know that we're all going to die, it's a fact of life, but how we die um, will vary from person to person. A lot of people die because of ill health, and I think it's something that we need to address, you know, how informed are we about health? nutrition, the food that we put on our plate, uh, the postcodes that we live in, the systems that we access. These are all conversations that we we need to have more and more in our own environments. Um, And also looking at our lifestyles. What is our lifestyle like? Um, Our mood, our mental health. This all comes to play when it intersects with the food that we put on our plate. There's a saying in life, and it goes like this, you are what you eat. And I, I agree with that so much we are what we eat and sometimes we really need to be careful about that and um think about how we manage our health for long-term benefits because uh, something i hear all the time is we'll inevitably fall ill or get some illness if that's how we do die but i guess the long-term goal is how do we live for longer um in a, in a healthier way um how do we reach those goals and so before I we get stuck into today's episode and I announce who is our guest, I want to share a few personal anecdotes with you about what I've been thinking about in terms of health. Um, I, think, I don't think many of you know, but I actually have type 2 diabetes. Uh, diabetes runs in my family and I was diagnosed with it about two years ago. It's a bit of a shock for me because I'm still quite young and it was a shock to my doctor as well and it's a bit of a concern. I'm trying to understand more about diabetes and my nutrition and food and my past history and my lifestyle, my mood. And one thing that I realised was that I was on free school meals my whole entire life. Um, When I say my whole entire life, I mean my educational life. Um, Because my family was from the lower socioeconomic ladder and they couldn't afford to send me to school with packed lunch. So I was never that kid with a fancy lunchbox, even though I wanted to be. Uh, I was that kid that was queuing up because, you know, I had a a free school dinner ticket. 
Primary school free school meals were great. I loved them. They were so varied. You get hot meals and cold meals, and the hot meals were always cooked from scratch, and there were lots of variations. And I would say I was quite spoilt for choice. But then I also remember in primary school, depending on who was in government in the 80s and 90s, we had a lot of upheaval then. Um, free school meals changed a lot, and I think that's probably why it was so varied. It would, it would change so much, and it was actually quite healthy looking back. But when I got to secondary school, I went to secondary school in the 90s. Um, free school meals, when I look back, I'm disturbed at what I see. And I've only really started looking back on my life since I started doing this podcast, I guess, more so in greater detail. I am very disturbed at what I see because where I went to school, free school meals look like this. Burgers, chips, pizzas, and large chocolate chip cookies. Never saw a salad. I mean, the closest you got to a salad was a coleslaw. And that's what I had, you know, every day for five, six years. Chips or two slices of pizza or chips or a burger. And it's um, really shocking to me, actually, now when I look back at that, because there's so much information now that it's not good to have, like, burger and chips every lunchtime or pizza and chips every lunchtime. It's the worst thing you could probably eat. It was fast food. Like when I look at my free school meals, it was fast food for five or six years. Could you believe that? I like looking back, I'm shocked and I'm stunned. And I, it just didn't occur to me at the time, but then I was only a child and a teenager and it wouldn't occur to me. And we were just grateful as a family that I could have a free school meal because my parents couldn't afford to buy me packed lunches. So, wow, I think that's like a massive factor, you know, what you put into your body for so, so long. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you've been smoking, how long you've been smoking, how many years you've been smoking and drinking or doing drugs, it's basically the same thing. I've filled my body with fast food for so, so long. Um, because I was on this free school meal at high school that was not healthy and was not varied. And since I was diagnosed with diabetes, I want to understand more about the food that I put in my plate, my lifestyle habits, the access, healthcare. I want to dissect that conversation with today's guest um, and just understand what the barriers might be, like when speaking to healthcare professionals and dietitians, what the, the messaging is and how they communicate. You see, being a British Bengali, uh, the Bangladeshi diet is actually very diverse. We eat a lot of seafood, vegetables, very, very varied, um, and actually very, very healthy. But there's a question mark around the portions that we put on our plate, because diabetes is very common in the Bangladeshi community, and I believe also uh, the wider Indian subcontinent. And so... I just want to understand like how we can help our community and I'm hoping today's reflective discussion will help us think more about what we put on our plates and what food we're consuming and the environment and healthcare accesses. It's interesting as well because um, I should mention my parents are very keen gardeners so uh, they kind of lived off the land I guess you could say but not quite in the sense that um, my parents grew their own veg and fruit. Uh, they grew everything from uh, red radishes, coriander, tomatoes, strawberries, turnips, marrow, potatoes, onions. They grew the whole lot in our back garden. So my parents very rarely ever purchased fruit and veg off like the market or the supermarkets. 
because we grew it in our back garden the only thing we really brought off the counter was um uh, meat and and fish from the butchers and so um I am keen to really go back in time I guess a little bit about what I've consumed growing up because we had a very strict healthy lifestyle when I was a kid, everything was organic. We weren't allowed snacks. I wasn't allowed sweets and chocolates and stuff like that. Uh, any little sweets, chocolates treat I would get was probably um, in in school. If there was like a dessert option, you might get like a yogurt or a mousse or something. Um, in primary school, that is. Because secondary school, it was very large chocolate chip cookies that are completely unnecessary and don't need to be on the menu. But, um, yeah, I just can't help but, like, reflect back on my food diary growing up as a kid and what my parents' lifestyle was like as well because they were diabetic. Uh, I can't really say that my parents ate unhealthily, and this is not me being defensive whatsoever. I'd say they they ate good food, but the portions were... I think there's a question mark around portions and what it should look like on your plate. Um, I think that is a question mark not just for me, but everyone in the Bangladeshi community and anyone else that might resonate with this in the South Asian diaspora. Um, Because, you know, eventually we're going to get an illness, so most of us will, and we're going to die. And we we need to think about sustaining our life and living long as possible. And me being a diabetic now, I'm really concerned. And it's an emotional roller coaster for me. I don't know if I have a food disorder, but I have an emotional eating issue. Because when I'm craving, oh my god, you know that I would have reached for a Domino's or something really unhealthy, like burger and chips, kind of like what I had in secondary school, you know, fast food, because of my poor mental health and grief, um, and so I will make really poor food choices, and that has kind of increased with all the bereavements that I've had, um, but then also being diagnosed with diabetes and not, you know, struggling to manage it has also had a really poor impact on my mental health that I felt very disheartened I guess and I'm a you know it's not to say that I'm not a conscious reader of labels um at the supermarket I read all of my labels if there's anything that I'm buying that comes from a box or a packet or a bottle I will always read the label and do comparisons like when I'm in the supermarket it's like rocket science (laughs) sorry it's not like rocket science but it's kind of like it's like a degree you know I I'm not the type of person that goes into the supermarket and just gets stuff off the to-do list um I pick very very carefully based on what the labels say and the cost they're like the two main factors so I hope that the break in today's episode in the usual format is helpful for our Bengali listeners and anyone that might resonate it within the South Asian diaspora and also uh, the black community too so which brings me to say now that I've got to the end of my personal anecdotes that today's guest is Priya Ahmed Priya is a PhD student currently studying at Teesside University her project is exploring the role of psychosocial cultural factors and how they play out in South Asians' dietary behaviour. Her main interest is type 2 diabetes and developing preventative lifestyle interventions using behaviour change models, women's health 
and addressing mental health to improve health outcomes for the South Asian population, but in particular focusing on addressing deprivation within the Bangladeshi community. Priya's long-term goals are to educate healthcare professionals and services on cultural barriers that South Asians may face when accessing services or implementing lifestyle changes. Well, folks, I hope that you enjoy a very reflective and open discussion about Priya's work and my own experiences of health and some of the barriers I personally face. Uh, Thank you to everyone that has tuned in today. As always, thanks for listening. I am your host, Kulseema Ali. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bereavement Room podcast. If you're joining for the first time, welcome. There are two prior seasons to add to your podcast list. You can also find us on Instagram. The handle is at Bereavement Room. I'm thrilled to say that I am joined by PhD student Priya Ahmed. Hi, Priya. Hi, Kulseema. Hello, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. It's a bit rainy over here on my side of the UK. I'm in London. Uh, you are, tell us where you are. Um, so I'm northeast, so Teesside, so yeah. quite up north, and it's raining up here as well. Ah, okay, yeah. I mean, yesterday was a, yesterday was a really beautiful day, and I, I went for a lovely walk near the canal. Um, and I had a feeling that that would be like the last bit of sunshine for this week. So that's good yeah. old um, British weather for you, isn't it? Yeah, typical, really. We're used to it, you know, kind of carrying yeah. umbrellas in our pockets. But I'm so happy you've joined me. I feel like we know each other already mm-hmm. um, through our, the work that you do and the work that I'm doing with Bereavement Room and uh, for other people like Jalel, for example. Yeah. Um, I know that you know Jalel already. You work quite closely with him because you're both mm-hmm. uh, PhD students in psychology. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. Like my listeners love to know where people are from, you know, where they grew up, what you're study- studying, what your interests are when you're not studying. So um, I grew up, I was born in Darlington, up north again. Um, and then I moved a couple of years ago to um, just 20 minutes away outside of Darlington to this little village called Norton. Um, so this is pretty much where I've been growing up for the remainder of my adulthood. Um, I studied here at the university and now I'm doing a PhD, really. Um, I'm trying to think what it's very much just naturally happened where I ended up doing psychology there was no grand plan behind it I just Mm. was very curious Mm. and then a couple of years later here I am doing a PhD which I never quite um, imagined would happen Um, and this is coming from someone who wasn't the smartest kid in school Um, so I'm kind of happy that um, I am able to do what I'm doing today Um, it's just about pushing boundaries and kind of believing in yourself and setting challenges and no matter what happens not kind of moving your eyes from the goals Um, and luckily the kind of research area that I'm doing is very close to home for both of us Mm. so it's within the community um, and again I never saw myself doing this sort of work I just was very much like the the background person the invisible person just living and breathing Um, but luckily you know outside of the PhD um, as you see some of the posts I'm very much into nice like a healthy 
lifestyle. Mm. So being active um, and luckily where I live, it's the scenery is beautiful because it's village life here. So I stick my wellies on, uh, go for hikes, go for walks. Um, and I try and eat um, as, as best I can in terms of, you know, nutritious meals and try and have um, home cooked meals so I can watch what I'm actually eating. But generally, you know, I'm a huge foodie because I'm not always, um, you know, 100 uh, percent healthy eating at all. I, I love my food um, and I love eating with my family, having family feasts. And I think that's also very important. Um, but just generally when you're not eating with your family and that just trying to live a a healthy lifestyle as possible but also trying to practice what you preach I just found if this is an area that I'm going to I see myself going long term I want to apply these kind of you know the things I always talk about around being active about eating healthy I want to do it myself before preaching to other people to do it yeah um, and it's not so much even preaching it's just um, giving them a bit of guidance and um, as we'll talk about the work that I do kind of leads around um, you know how do we deliver these advice especially for culturally tailored um communities mm. so i mean we're very much going to be focusing on self-care and health care particularly bangladeshi community and then the broader south asian community uh in today's conversation i just want to touch on a few things that you mentioned there um you said you weren't the smartest kid in in school what what does that mean um, I think I was always um, not the bottom, bottom set and I wasn't at the top set, but, um, you know, reading, writing wasn't always easy for me. And that's something that I identified as um, part of the way I learned is a bit of a weakness. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think pretty much later on in university, I think halfway through the second half of my undergrad studies, I got support for that. Um, so it was nice to know that um, it's not a case of there was anything wrong with my intelligence it just meant I learned very differently my working memory isn't great so when you'd sit in lecture theatres I couldn't take in all the information um so I would just record it and then I'd type up the notes later and I'd get people to check the work that I do as well because I can't spot my own grammatical errors um so it's a combination of all of that really that you just often think gosh I have made it this far it hasn't been too bad I mean yeah it takes me longer to read an A4 piece of paper than it would to a normal person but you just learn to adapt um, mm. and I just remember as a child feeling very much like oh god why do I feel so dumb um, mm. am I always going to feel like this what are my career prospects and I'm just so happy that um, I never stopped I never stopped um, just pushing forward and, and knowing that no matter what happens you just make the best of it and here I am <laughs> amazing i love this this is so inspirational and i feel like with particularly our community bangladeshis uh, education you know i think our educational prospects i don't know what the data is now because i haven't seen it but i don't often see us really excelling in education in comparison to other south asian communities in the same way and i i think it's really important that what you mentioned there about that we all have different learning styles right it's yeah it's not always one way of learning it's not always linear uh so we need other ways to be able to do our own learning that works for us it's that and I think it's also um you know who how are you nurturing that person to so that they grow up and they're into their education and they at least prioritize it to give them the best start in life um and I think it's looking for role models and I've talked quite a bit around I'm the first one in my family to do a PhD um 
second or third or fourth maybe um, to do a master's um, but nobody else has gone as far as doing like a doctorate level um, qualification mm. and it's scary because you're kind of making your own new trail and um, around I'm 26 years old um, and I'll probably be 30 by the time I fully finish the PhD and my stage two training which is around two years um, and graduate which is normally the year after um, and again, this is like new territory because, again, nobody in my family has kind of been down this route. Um, and I guess to a non-Asian person, they might think, well, that's just bizarre. You just follow your dreams. And it's like, um, no, things kind of work a lot different for us. Um, we don't have the luxury of time where you could just spend the next 20 years on your education and, and not settle down. So it's around almost creating your, your own little trail Um and I guess when you don't have role models, you become your own role model and you kind of learn along the way. I mean, so far it's worked. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to trust myself to continue going whichever way it goes. I know that it brings me happiness doing what I do. I love doing what I do in health psychology and all the work that I do around it. So I'm going to continue doing it and, and see where it takes me. That's so lovely. And to all our Bengali listeners, of which there are many, I hope that brings you value um, for, from hearing about Priya's experience. I just want to talk a little bit about role models before we start talking a bit more about your project. Um, do, you think, do you think that's quite common in the Bangladeshi community that we don't have many role models? Yeah, that is the case. Um, and I guess it depends what context you look at. So for me, um, you know, PhD is technically still studying. You're still at university. Um, and when you're doing it past the age of 25, it becomes it can become difficult because I think a lot of people have a lot to say about that. Um, and then they know that you're not going to finish, obviously, tomorrow. It's going to take a good couple of years for you to finish qualifying. And that takes you up to the grand age of 30. Um, and for me, I think that's when my life will truly begin is at the age of 30, um, doing what I've worked hard for hopefully as a psychologist um when you don't have one I think it's it's scary for a lot of people because they don't know what to do um and they're afraid to make decisions um but they don't know what the boundaries are they don't know what the the response is going to be um and, and it can be scary and the thing is nobody ever really talks about it so when they talk about um you know encouraging more South Asians to go down the PhD route to fully qualify it takes a good couple of years and I'm going to be lucky if I finished within the three years because I know people like jo Jalal who it took more than three years um, for him to finish his PhD. Mm -hmm. But especially for women, um, you deal with, you know, a lot of comments and indirect comments as well. So even if on the surface, it's like, yeah, they, they um, are very happy for you. They're supportive. I think I always know what the feeling and a lot of this comes down to just studying psychology. You kind of get the idea of what they're trying to say when they're saying something completely different um and it's learning to overcome all of that and not letting it sway you from where you want to go and what you want to do and I always prioritize happiness especially doing psychology I know how important it is that you do something that you love and that you're passionate about and um I know quite a few people who have actually wanted to go back to education as um, a later stage do it do it if it makes you happy that you could there's no reason why you can't do both it just means the timeline is going to be a lot different to mm. the traditional timeline oh yeah absolutely and I think for women that want to start families or want to explore other areas like traveling um yeah as you said earlier it's about the context of things um it's interesting I'm just uh reflecting on what 
you've shared with us. I think yeah. when when I look back at my time in my 20s because I'm not in mm. my 20s even though everyone thinks I am um, yeah. <laughs> um I I I have to say I didn't have you know my parents were role models in a different sense but not an educational mm. sense because yeah. they, they didn't go to school here um they didn't really understand the system um and I don't think they ever really pressured me I didn't have the same pressures that some of my other South Asian friends, I'll say, had, as in they needed to bring home A's, B's, right? Um, And that they had to go to university and they had to be a doctor or a dentist or, you know, a teacher or something Mm. like that. I never had those pressures. It was more like, as long as you've got a reef over your head, food on the table, you're okay. And if you're employed, you're okay. Like, those were like really big dreams that were really unattainable. And I spent most of my 20s really just trying to work out what it is that I like and I don't like in various different careers and sectors Mm -hmm. I guess Mm -hmm. um and I think having a role model is really important someone to sort of cheer you on even if they don't know what it is that you you know what you want to study or what career path you want to go down but just having that level of support of someone behind you to encourage you to you know pursue different avenues or when you don't get the right grades to really support you I mean role models can they they vary it comes in different forms um and my parents are role models to me but in a different sense yeah Um, no I totally agree so even if it doesn't come within your own family there might be you know um people that you see on the tv people that you hear about are doing this type of work and they're from the same background as you um it comes in many different formats Mm. but it's just really what works for you and what encourages you um and even if your family are not supportive of you you know going further in your education if you have that drive if you have that passion you still can do it that there's nothing stopping you it just means there might be a battle on your hands and um, trying to overcome anything that might say that might you know um, obscure your way from going ahead and um, I think that's something to be aware of but I also found within me I just found it a kind of innate like inside me that I knew I wanted to do it and I just trusted that and went with it I didn't really need anyone at the time to to say that I will support you on this I just went for it anyway Mm-hmm. I think that's really important I did the same thing when I went to university uh, no one encouraged me to go to university I, it was that mm-hmm. innate thing that I was like I want to go to university and this is what I want to study and I want to have that experience um, and so I did go to university but without any advice or guidance from family members to be honest. The environment also helps because um let's say for studying you know you need that kind of space and respect so if you're living with your family um letting them you know giving you that space and peace so you can do your work now if you have family members around you know guests around every other day or just sitting there all day that can sometimes act as a barrier Mm. um and I think this is one thing within the South Asian community that's common is not all the time our environments created to support someone with their education and their learning Um, and that can often uh, be a big barrier so they might think I'm just never gonna have time to sit and study because I have to do this yeah yeah there's no silence I have to go to this wedding I have to go there and what I've learned over time is it's discipline so some people might say I'm a tiny bit antisocial and I don't go everywhere 
I go some places, I just pick and choose. I don't have the luxury of the time to go everywhere now. I'm just very much precious with the time that I have. Um, and if there's a choice between I need to take a break tomorrow um, and just relax and go running or go and see a certain family member, I would rather go running for my own mm. mental health and well-being. Mm. So it's making these decisions and it can come across as selfish. But I also think you're no good to no one if you're not feeling good. Absolutely, absolutely. Self-care is so, so important. And I mean, if you did end up going to that family event or wedding, you're not going to be fully present anyway because you're not feeling well. It's just finding a balance. So it's not saying mm. that you have to cut your family out, but just let them know that you might not hear from me as much um, because I'm just going to be busy with my studies. And that's that's the case. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very fair. And um, that's some good guidance for our Bangladeshi and South Asian listeners. So, so tell me a little bit more about your project that you're working on, particularly diabetes. You, you mentioned that. So my um, project is obviously within um, health psychology. So I'm interested in the psychosocial factors that play a role in when we're changing our dietary behavior. So we know diet is a huge risk factor for diabetes and cardiovascular disease and many other chronic illnesses. Um, But it can also be a great way of managing and treating the chronic illness as well. So I thought diet would be a good place to focus on. So my aim is to actually develop a virtual community intervention um, with uh, South Asian women. Mm. Um, It was going to be local at first, but now with COVID, it's going to be an online national study instead, which in a good way, um, it might be exciting to see what the results will be. Um, And it's just um, trying to focus on building healthy habits as opposed to aiming for them to lose weight. I'm not really interested in that. I want them to actually build um, the, the confidence in knowing what they're eating, knowing what they're changing and why they're changing it, knowing what the risk factors are and kind of just knowing what the end goal is towards actually focusing on your diet and why do we eat healthy? We we eat healthy so we can prevent illnesses um, and live a healthy life. Um, So I'm wanting to work with people who are are at risk with diabetes but don't have diabetes. So it could work as a preventative intervention. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, the health services are also saying that well the diabetes team in the NHS everywhere are communicating that type 2 diabetes can be reversed in the first seven years is what they're saying through weight loss so I've got two questions for you why (laughs) does the National Health Service focus on weight loss then because I'm just for those of you that don't know I don't mind sharing I am type 2 diabetes and I think the support hasn't been accurate. I mean, when I went to see the dietitian, he told me to lose three dress sizes to cure it. But then he went on to say that doesn't mean actually that it will work. In fact, um, it might help. It could just be in your genetics. And then he went on to ask about if I ate roti for breakfast and if I was taking sugar in my hot drinks. It wasn't holistic. He just wasn't asking me questions. It was a lot of like, <laughs> you know. Presumptions. You, yeah, presumptions. Exactly. And he was just like, oh, well, you you know, how much of your mum's food are you eating? I was like, my mum's been dead for 10 years. I haven't been eating her food for 10 years so like it's Uh, just it's just these really awkward questions they don't actually want to hear about what my lifestyle is they just want to make assumptions that I take two sugars in my tea when in fact I haven't taken tea I'm sorry I haven't taken sugar in my tea or coffee in almost a decade and a half and it's always black mm -hmm. my coffee and tea is always black so 
uh, they make these assumptions and then they focus on losing all this weight whereas you're telling me that you want to focus more around diet and preventative so talk, talk to me a little bit why you think that is why do they focus on weight loss so aside from the intervention I'm doing quite a lot of work around how do we deliver these messages so kind of what you've touched upon here is simply telling someone to lose weight and then off you go is not going to be effective at all yeah five now, losing five weight, leaflets they've they literally will stuff five leaflets in your hand be like read this here's your chart your food diary and I I, I don't know how helpful that is but yeah sorry I think it's um no that, that's okay um I think it's just the way that the message is framed so just losing weight that doesn't tell you anything I think what people need to understand losing weight generally does help so even losing around five percent of your body weight can help improve the uh, the blood pressure and the blood level blood sugar glucose levels um and you touched upon earlier on around remission rate so it type two can be reversed through the right diet now it, it's not as simple as um, go and improve your diet and that's it. You need to learn how to actually control your blood um, glucose sugar levels. And that's one of the big things around living with type 2 diabetes. Um, and I'm very much around long-term sustainable changes. So that's why I'm focusing on healthy habits because we need to educate people how to actually do it. Just telling them to lose um, a bit of weight is not going to do them any good. They need to actually learn how to eat um, in a way that their, their sugar levels are not spiking. Um, and excess body weight does not it doesn't help with the insulin level because it can almost make it worse mm. and it's a combination of managing the weight once you've lost a tiny bit of weight and it's in a in a you know a, a position where you can focus on just managing um, keeping the weight that you've got but actually eating healthy that's an, another important factor for it with um, some moderate exercise on the side which is just general walking which everybody should be doing regardless whether you have diabetes or not so it's very much just going back to how we're framing this message and focusing on educating people how to eat and when I mean e eating, not telling them how to eat the Western diet. And again, this is another one of my criticisms towards um, the big national programs. They're not culturally tailored. So we know rice is a staple within um, our culture. It's part of our identity. It's how we eat and it makes us who we are. Um, as opposed to telling them cut the, the rice out. Now, having a low carb diet does help because a lot of the carbs um, kind of make the blood sugar glucose levels very unstable. They add more insulin when you don't need it. Um, so rather than cut it out, it's just eating moderately. So rather than have it two, three times a day, maybe just eat it once a day and maybe look at having brown rice instead. So you're kind of tailoring it so that they're able to adhere to the advice that you give and understanding that they have a different cuisine. So trying to find healthy ways of eating the food that they love they're more likely to keep that change and do it over long term. And you're kind of empowering them. So instead of telling them, go and lose weight, you're actually educating them. How can they take control of their own life? Um, because one of the biggest problems is with diabetes, it's a long term chronic illness that you're living with. And a lot of the time, people don't have the luxury of reversing it or going into remission for whatever reason. And genetics can always be against you, but it should never be kind of a reason or a barrier to stop you from making those changes and you can always go on to have a normal happy life if you know what you're doing in terms of your diet and your physical exercise um, and if you do need to take any kind of medication then take them accordingly um, but just knowing that you can take control of your own condition um, and I think that's always missing or lacking when the um 
health services are delivering these messages and it, it's not everyone and I think it's very much dependent on you know where the service is located what is the ratio of South Asian patients that they see um, so up north the population is very different to maybe where you live um, and we have a doctor that's easily accessible um, who gives good advice um, to my parents especially my dad um, to manage his condition um, and it's just yeah I guess it really just comes down to what type of services and how you're actually accessing it and how these people are treating you, what type of level of service they're providing for you. Mm. Yeah, so where I am in London, there's a lot of deprivation and health services are very stretched. I guess in maybe in a quieter area where there's a smaller Mm. population that I can see why there would be a difference in that. Um, There would be a difference, but I think the problem still remains that the advice that's, you know, often handed out is not culturally tailored. And this is why, A, South Asians don't adhere to it, and B, this is why they struggle to adhere to it. You know, when when my mum had, you know, a long time ago when I was a kid, right, when she first got her diabetes, a diabetic nurse used to come and visit her once a month. And I remember when we switched to brown rice and no sugars in hot drinks and you know, she she just got worse over time. So I, I, what is, what's the conversation around portion control then when you do switch to like brown, brown rice and taking sugar out and eating more leafy greens, right? Um, what, does there need to be a bit more of an emphasis on portion control then? Because I, I know loads of Bangladeshi families, right? They'll eat like Kerala, right? Or something like that uh, with a little bit of rice where they've, you know, made their portions a lot smaller, um, where they'll put a lot less oil or yeah. they'll eat, you know, boiled vegetables. You know, my mum went through a phase where she ate for years just a few boiled vegetables like carrots mm-hmm. and sprouts in the morning with a bo- boiled egg, right? And... Mm-hmm. I'm just like I think this whole understanding your food and how to consume food in a smart way you're right it's an educational it is an education actually and a, and a shift because um, rice is a staple in our diet but how much rice should we be eating I suppose is a question I think um, it depends on obviously your own body weight and your age and there's various different factors involved in that I tend to use um, I think most dietitians and nutritionists would be using their hand as some sort of measurement so almost like um, a fist size of um, is it protein or fat I can't remember and the carbs should pretty much fit within the palm of your hand and because our stomachs are not actually that big and although growing up I would have a plate full of rice I know that is too much excessive and that's that's one of the biggest um you know not even a misconception that's just the biggest reality within the Bangladeshi community um how we consume rice and I think it's it is excess and it's not good um Mm -hmm. what I try to encourage is maybe pick some days where you don't have the rice you know try a different type of carb um it's depending on what the carb is. So if it's like a tortilla wrap, then obviously the size and portion would be a lot different. But where you can try and eat the non-refined version, so the brown version of rice, the brown version of bread, um, and not excessively eating it. So maybe skip the carb on the, on the very last meal, maybe on the evening. Um, it's it's more complex in, ter- in terms of what diet plans you would follow. And there isn't really just a one diet plan. It's very much dependent, again, on, on how far you what, what kind of condition how you're dealing with your type two um and and those kind of factors around it mm. 
So if you could give one big tip to our community on, you know, how to work with their diabetes in terms of lifestyle and food, and you've already touched on it, if there was one big thing that you could just would say to our community that's listening right now that they could change or think about and consider, what would that be? Educating yourself. So that way, you know, um, kind of what you're doing and why you're doing it and it's not as simple as um you know cut the carbs out there's a lot of things you need to keep in mind and it's, um, rather than focus too much on cutting the carbs you need to make sure you're getting all the nutrients that you need so making sure on the plate you've got a protein source you've mm. got all the fibers there and then mm. you've got a small portion of the carbs obviously rainbow. um yeah. and try and have you know like a, a rainbow diet as best as you can and we're no stranger to vegetables we've got some some really good vegetable based dishes that we can have maybe not deep fried and maybe use less of the oil so making these small little changes we can still eat what we like um but we just need to be educated in portion um sizes and what we're actually putting on the plate and knowing how much carb to eat and how much carb not to eat um, normally the mediterranean diet is quite favored because they include nuts and healthy fats and that's something we should maybe focus on and we do eat fish i think it's just focusing on eating maybe the oily fish and try and um oh yeah on, we, love our fish. <laughs> we do yes <laughs> maybe munch on just almond nuts and stuff i mean mm. we like grazing on stuff so if we can have stuff like bombay mix but may- maybe just include a few more nuts and reduce the more let's say food like um, bombay mixing crisps and stuff like that that's really helpful Priya really good guidance on how we can also help ourselves and our elders like our parents and our grandparents where you know maybe we can adapt to a few things in their snacking if they are snacking it's very much a team effort especially if you're living in a family where there's more than one or two generations Mm. um, because you all tend to eat the same meal Um, but it really starts with one person making that change and it's normally the person who makes the food so Mm. what you put in front of them often will be what they eat now there might be some resistance at the start but if you know anything about behavior change you know it doesn't happen overnight I mean it took me many years before I got to a stage where I enjoy physical activity I wasn't always like this Um, and even eating I love my food Um, they nicknamed me chef Priya because I'm always cooking and posting food but over time my food is now focusing more on enjoying eat the same stuff that we enjoy but more cooked in a more kind of healthy way so air fried and baked and those kind of methods Mm. and including more fruit and veg so you're kind of um supporting your gut health as well which links with your overall health so Mm. it's just learning about all these different things how you know how can you maintain a healthy lifestyle but also understanding that behavior change even if you relapse and you have a day where you're just gonna you know completely bingy and whatever it is that you do um the next day when you get up you just continue doing what you were already trying to do and that's normal behavior change that's more realistic Mm. and it's okay if you do relapse for a little while um you know as long as you have a plan to try and get back on there is that quite normal that people would relapse then would you Um, say i'm going to avoid using the word relapse actually it's just knowing to live a a more realistic general Mm. kind of balanced um lifestyle so yeah just have a bag of crisp and then make sure the other meals that you have has got all your protein and all your nutrients that you need and that's all you need to see it as don't see it as having a chocolate bar and you feel guilty because then that just instills um eating disorders which you really don't need if you're trying to focus on maintaining Mm. um sorry addressing the type 2 diabetes that you're already living with 
Mm. Yeah, I'm. I it is a, this is a massive educational piece. I think. I mean, it has been for mm-hmm. me over the past few years. I don't often eat crisps, for example, but when I do get a crisps craving, I go about it the completely wrong way. I'll buy a multi pack of discos. And I'll probably That's eat. dangerous. I, there was a bag of uh, Transformers, <laughs> you know, the sharing pack. Yeah. And I put it into a container and it looks much less than what it is in the packet. And I yes. realised I ate the whole thing. Yes, that's it. You end up eating all the bags in a day if you're not, you know, spreading it over time. And mm. yeah, I guess it is habits and kind of looking at our behaviours. So just curious. It is, but it's also the environment plays a huge role. So I did a, a blog on, yeah. um, you know, how the frequency of how often we have these family get togethers and weddings and events and feasts. And that can often deter you from whichever diet plan that you might have that you're That's trying true. to manage and eat. Um, so it's, it, it's going to take a big approach to, working on the system I call it the the cultural system to support people to make these changes because without that support it's really hard for the individual to make those changes Mm. I I have to say I'm not sure how much faith I have in our health service to be culturally aware on these things particularly Mm -hmm. in areas that are really high populated like where I live I'm just curious Mm -hmm. to know um, before we move on to mental health uh, Mm -hmm. in our communities so do you shop differently to your family members or have you all collectively made that change now and have quite a varied diet over the weeks and days so it I do do my own little house shop and I'll go and fill my trolley with them um, avocados and fruit and veg and I get so, such a thrill out of doing it but I also have my little snacks and my treats as well so I have a nice balanced one where I'm happy eating what I eat um my mum is quite good with her health um she pretty much kind of educated herself and then made those changes and luckily she's in good health now Mm. my dad's the opposite um work in progress yeah (laughs) Uh, my brother is quite young so it's not I mean I do tell him you know eat don't just you know overeat on the junk food try and get some fruit and veg down you he's skinny um and I said even though you can't see the outcome yet that doesn't mean further down the line you won't gain excess weight but I think because him he's young I don't want to put that sort of you know, I think it could deter them into more eating disorders. So you want to be sure. careful what kind of advice you give to younger people. Sure. And then my sister, who's a naturally small person, um, you know, she can eat everything and she won't gain weight. It's it's nothing around the size of you or mm. how much you're eating. It's more around the nutrients you're putting in your body so you exactly. can avoid in any kind of illnesses and colds that you would get. Trying to build a good immune system, that should be the priority. Mm. Well, Priya, that was really informative and really, really helpful. And I think it will help our Bangladeshi and South Asian communities that are locked in today because, you know, bereavement and other mental health issues are sometimes related to health. Well, often always related Mm -hmm. to health, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's where it all stems from. So just moving on to mental health, um, what can we do to support our community? I mean, how does mental health do you see manifest in our community? What can Mental health is more of a minefield. And I think I, I do a lot of work around health with it being health psychology, but there's no good health without a good mental health. Mm. And sadly, the social determinants um, within what we see, like the socioeconomic side of it, the structural racism, um, all of that results in poor mental health and poor quality of life for South Asians and Bangladeshis in, in particular. 
um, you know, stuff around low job security, food poverty, living in smaller housing with more family members, um, finance can have a strain. When you're dealing with all of that, you're not going to be thinking about how to eat healthy. You're just going to be surviving. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. And that's what's against a lot of South Asians trying to make any healthy changes, not even healthy, any positive changes in their life because they're too busy trying to survive. And mental health, you know, you can put on tailored mental health services, but when you've got an entire structure that's against you and doesn't make it easy or makes it more difficult, then it becomes harder for people like me to do my job because I do want to bring that change about, but I can't do it alone. Mm. So you talked about survival and I think that is one of the biggest things in our community where we are always trying to survive. That's our constant. And sometimes it's hard to look at the other areas and tackle those areas and give time to those areas. So you you mentioned your goal is to educate healthcare services. Um, What, you know, break that down for me. What would that look like once you've qualified and everything? So it's educating them on what is it that the what are the barriers that we face on a daily basis and, you know, um, what are the facilitators? So we know what the barriers are, but what are the facilitators that can help us? So knowing that we have access to services that um, will tailor the advice so our life is valued to them, we're important enough for them to put this extra money in to support services um, like interventions, the one that I'm putting together so that they're able to um, be implemented and accessed by South Asians so they can make these changes. Mm. And it's not so much that nobody cares or we don't value our life. I think that's a a big lie and it's a big misconception. We do, we value it. We just want to learn how to do it and be empowered to take control of our own life. But we don't always have the means to do that, sadly. And again, that goes back to socioeconomics. Um, So I'm hoping, you know, much further down the line, I kind of put a spotlight on that and try and prioritise mental health for South Asians because whichever way you try and fix health, it's got to come back to mental health and trying to provide them with the support and services. And luckily, our generation is a lot more vocal. We're more sure. fierce. Yeah. Um, and things are slowly changing. We still have a long way to go. Mm. Um, but the, the good thing is there is hope um, moving forward how mental health will be Um, talked about in our community how the stigma might reduce Um, and hopefully if people know that they're not feeling good or the situation isn't good they're going to do something about it as opposed to feeling scared um, and not reaching out. Mm. But you know sometimes when we go to healthcare professionals you talked a little bit about systemic racism and structural racism Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when we do go to health professionals, they don't really hear us, particularly if they're from a different community or a white counterpart. They don't often hear us. And a lot of the programs that they do put on for diabetes, especially, is a one size fits all. So you saying that over time we need to start introducing things that are a bit more specific to our community so we can look at those barriers specifically and break everything down rather than just sending everyone on this, mm-hmm. you know, one day course yeah. that you have to attend. Okay. Um, the way I tend to see it is, again, it's very much dependent on the area because services differ. Um, luckily there are some really good community interventions that are out there doing the work that I'm trying to do as well. Mm. Um, it's hard in the sense where it, it, it can't just come down to me 
it's got to be everybody playing an active role. They've got to take an interest. They've got to mm. fight for us um, if you're not from a non-South Asian background. Um, and just understanding that things won't change until we address the, the actual foundation of the issue. So if you want to complain that the South Asians having diabetes as a burden on the economics, which I just read a recent paper about it, then you need to make sure whichever services you're currently, um, you know, offering is actually addressing the problem because it, clearly it's not addressing the problem. The rates of diabetes is still going up. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of people who have diabetes and don't even realise they have it. And I oh, think yeah. this comes down to uh, numerous things, but one of them might be just assumptions when somebody is sat in front of you, they don't have any education as to how a South Asian person lives, how they eat. So they'll have their own assumptions and give medical advice um, whichever way they see fit. Now, that's not an attack on on doctors. I think doctors are trying to do the best job they can. But I think it's just the whole system together because it's quite multifactorial. Mm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, I think there is an assumption that we are curry munchers from dusk till dawn, which is not the truth at all. Um, no, I think people do want to make those changes. Um, mm. But again, it, they don't always have the means to do it and they don't have the education and the capability mm. to do it and the motivation as well. Mm. You know, people die quite young in our community um, mm -hmm. and there is often a, a late diagnosis and, or poor outcomes. Do you think that's largely to do with what you've mentioned there? There's definitely racism involved in that, 100%. Um, but, but I also think there's a huge um, prevalence in people not knowing that there's an actual that they're living with a certain condition or illness. So I know with diabetes, there tends to be a lot of undiagnosed cases and the cases don't present themselves until much later on when it's it's harder to address the problem. So if you're older and you have type two and you've lived a certain way, it's harder to undo some of that and change mm. whichever diet they might have been following before um, to get them to manage the condition um, and education as well. So I do quite a lot on women's health as well. So um just for women to understand their, their bodies and knowing, you know, what's normal and what's not normal, because we have a lot of female, um, sorry, gender specific health disparities as well. Mm. And especially within the South Asian community, they won't reach out because there's a lot of stigma around it. Um, and again, it's assumptions, but we need to make it easy for them to reach out and make services accessible and educate the healthcare professional workforce when working with South Asians. So we have better outcomes on a whole. Mm really really insightful really insightful um you know I'm doing my own sort of unlearning and un unpacking for myself just because mm -hmm. I haven't had a good experience with healthcare uh, for multiple yeah. reasons um and I think it's reached its boiling point now for me personally as many people know that listen mm -hmm. to this podcast but not just for me but also other people that have appeared on the bereavement room I think it's really really important we invest in this and educate ourselves and challenge as, as much as we can and try to look after our vulnerable family members as much as possible and I know there might be some you know resistance there or it might take some time because uh, as you said behavioral yeah. change does take a while but really insightful really useful information thank you so we're going to be wrapping up really soon and before yeah. before we do I'd love to talk to you about Bengali Joy because I don't mm -hmm. think that we do talk about that enough and also we're not you know when I enter South Asian spaces 
I very rarely meet other Bangladeshis, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. O- it's only since I started podcasting, I've just met so many Bengalis, whether they're creative or in academia, just from everywhere. And, you know, not just in the UK, but also in the States. And it's been mm-hmm. really lovely to see when that's something that I just haven't seen much of gr- growing it's up. It's just seeing um, all the amazing things everyone's doing. And Isn't empowering it? each other, yeah. Isn't it? And I would love to see more of the South Asian spaces try and platform us because you are calling yeah. yourself a South Asian space. <laughs> so and we are part of South Asia, but, you know, we are also... It's a just changing the narrative, you know, not everything is negative and all dull and miserable. Mm. I think it's just knowing, yeah, okay, we've got a lot of things against us. We get that. We understand that. Mm. But, you know, hopefully things are going to change and that's going to come down to our generation doing the work that we do, doing the work that you do, raising awareness and being vocal about it, opening the conversation. These are the things that are going to bring about bigger changes. And if there's more of us doing it, then the louder the message will be. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So go on then, tell me, what's your favourite Bengali snack or dish? Um, I like anything spicy. So um, the chickpea stew, as uh, I would describe it, so chotpati, stuff like that, I absolutely love. Street food, I'm a huge fan of. Um, Spicy, sour food, taramint, anything like that. I'm I'm always eaten in gulps. And and just general feast. I like to completely cover the table with lots of different colourful dishes that we have. Um, I'm very much into more the vegetable ones. So um, anything satni related, basically. So just making it like a a vegetable salad or just um, some sort of, uh, what do you call it? Just like baking or oven baking, just vegetables and mixing it with some chilli and onion always does the trick. Lovely. Um, And it's the same with fruits where you just mix it with chilli and garlic. I absolutely love it. Um, so very much street food for me mm, nice I I'm gonna be really we've been talking about health here I'm gonna be talking about nunorobara or, or nungura depending on how you pronounce it <laughs> it's home <laughs> comfort food I mean I, I have it I know it's not the healthiest but I have it and it's nice oh my gosh it's I only ever eat it or need I, I suppose but I mm-hmm. it's it, just to explain to our non-Bengali listeners it's a rice flour savory snack I guess is the best way to explain it yeah um it's round and we put turmeric in it so it's yellow um but I just love it and I only ever have it or need but I could Oh, just thinking about it. I like the snacks, like samosas and and stuff, all the little dips, chutney dips and stuff like that. I'm very much of a pick and mix person as opposed to one whole meal. Mm. I think our cuisine, I think Bengali cuisine is very diverse, actually. People just think it's fish, right? But actually, it's very multifaceted. Um, I don't actually eat the fish. Um, I don't like fish curries. I just about eat fish fingers, I think. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. That's the acid person. test. That's the acid <laughs> test. If you don't like hutki, oh, my God. No, I do like that. In I like the, when it thinks the juices, I can have it, but I can't have the actual fish. Mm, yeah, I've, like fish is, you know, it's quite depending on where you grew up and stuff it can be quite traditional there are lots of fish mm-hmm. Bengali fish dishes that I don't like and then equally others that I absolutely love but you know my diet has changed a lot over time um yeah. in, in the years because of moving and you know stuff like that so yeah for me it's definitely no no but it's it's nice to kind of share that with you you know that you like your satni food is the sa- staple like it's the central of you know 
our culture and I think that's not yeah. something we should give up either it's just working around it so we can still mm. eat what we love but also mm. focus on our health at the same time yeah it's very much centered around family gatherings weddings or just a Saturday you know yeah. it's such an important part of who we are and I completely agree with you that that it is just about adapting a little bit and thinking about what it is that we're putting inside of our body and as opposed to cutting things out I think that's where things go wrong and that's not really behavior change is it no and we you know they nutritionists that I've met in the past have always said you can eat everything it's not about cutting it out but it's just thinking about how much of what you're putting inside of you exactly what that means and also reading the packets you know, I think a lot of people don't yes. read the labels. I mean, I was definitely someone that grew up that didn't read, lab- you know, the labels on packets. But now I do that religiously, particularly when I'm buying cereal, because cereal, for people that don't know, there's a lot of sugar in cereals. There is. And people and obviously on a morning, say, if a South Asian mother is just putting out cereal for the child before they go to school, um, their intention isn't obviously to give them bad food, but they're just unaware of the mm. sugar content of it. Mm. and again that comes back to education well Priya I've really really enjoyed this conversation thank you so much for blessing me with your presence you're Um, very welcome and um, we're going to move to the gratefulness challenge before we close Uh, you know what this is right because you've listened to the podcast in the past yeah okay so I'll just go over it quickly um it's just one thing that we're grateful for in the here and now, not to find a silver lining, uh, but mm-hmm. equally, you're free to say what you're not grateful for. I'll mm-hmm. go first to give you uh, some time to think about it. Mm-hmm. So I think I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this conversation, I went for a really nice walk uh, yesterday because the weather was just lovely by the canal. And I, you know, just being in nature is really helpful for me and my Mm -hmm. mental health. And I couldn't help but think how, like, I just felt really blessed in that moment, you know, with with another day here. And then coming home, I thought, you know what, I'm going to limit my time on social media and scrolling because, you know, I end up doom scrolling sometimes. It's not healthy. Yeah. And so I thought, let me put on Absolute Radio on the TV and just listen to two hours of music, have a cup of tea. And I just felt so, I just felt so happy, like just yeah. so, so grateful to just chill out and switch off and just listen to some good music. And yeah, I. You know, I think about those quiet moments and I think they, those we need to implement more quiet moments like that if we can. And I just yeah. felt, felt happy that I was able to do that and not be disturbed so I can just have some time with my mm-hmm. own thoughts. So super grateful for that. But also, you know, this third season very much is about p- platforming Bangladeshi voices. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. a lot more Bengali voices across various disciplines. And yeah. To me, that just feels really, really special as it is the third and final season of Bereavement Room. So I hope all of the listeners and everyone that supports it, that you've really enjoyed our conversation today and all of the guests that come through. So, yeah, that's me. That's what I'm grateful for in the here and now. Over to you. Um, so working from home. So I thought it's going to be bad since the whole um, lockdown started, but having the flexibility to 
wake up, um, have a sleep in on some days. And I think this is just down to the flexibility of doing a PhD um, and only teaching part time. So I try and prioritize a walk every morning. So mm. living where I live, I'm quite grateful for that. It's a nice place, a village to walk through, go running through um, and have more of a chilled morning, have my breakfast, just go through my phone quickly and then sit down at my desk and do some work. So I'm quite enjoy it's like a silver lining of working from home I know it's not been um the most exciting thing um and I am looking forward to going back to the university where my desk is but I'm also enjoying just the flexibility of working from home it's nice because you get to prioritize um j- just getting some fresh air doing my workout in the morning doing a bit of yoga in the morning or even on a lunchtime um things that I wouldn't normally be able to do if I had to go to uni and be there all day so I'm quite grateful for that Well, that was Priya Ahmed, a PhD student at Teesside University. I heard Priya as she said she can't do this alone when the systems and structures are like this. We all have a part to play. However, it is public knowledge that your postcode is a large factor in all this. Where you live matters when it comes to deprivation. This will largely paint a picture of what healthcare schools and hospitals look like in your area. Who your government and local MP is an essential part of all of this too, when looking at the wider structures and systems. We talked about cultural tailoring and awareness, which I agree is a important factor to help support our communities so we can thrive. I don't claim to be an expert of anything other than my own lived experiences. My healthcare professionals, including my dietitian, is from the South Asian diaspora. Yes, that's right, sit with it. It's uncomfortable. I'm not sure I fully understand this cultural competent and cultural tailoring concept fully. There's a conversation that needs to be had about that on its own, about what it looks like in great detail. And it's not going to happen in this room. You need to take that to your own environment and keep having open conversations about this. I personally think the interaction needs to be holistic without making presumptions. My diabetic dietitian was from the South Asian diaspora. My mum's GP that could have prevented her death was from the South Asian diaspora. So this takes me back to my trailer for this season. Do we understand communities different to our own? Yes, the structure and the education is a factor, but your day-to-day interactions with healthcare professionals shouldn't look like mine, but they do. And the curveball is, they're not from the Caucasian community, they're from the South Asian diaspora. I believe health services will be based on the social situation of your postcode and your own lifestyle based on your economic circumstances and how holistic your healthcare professional is when it comes to working with you on managing and intervening with your health for long-term benefits. This shouldn't just include medication, but holistic lifestyle changes that are realistic for a person's needs. As Priya said, adapting our relationship with food doesn't happen overnight. It's an education piece. This is why it's essential we educate ourselves on health, nutrition, the environment in which we live in and reflect on our own daily lifestyle habits and the state of our mental health. Because I am deeply concerned healthcare professionals are not providing the adequate support we need. It's a shame I really wanted to have a NHS doctor or GP on this final season to talk about what their barriers are to join up the dots as I feel I am missing half of the story here. The more I think about it, the more loaded it becomes. Education is important, but if you're constantly in survival mode, this might not be a priority, so you will fall back on your healthcare professional to help you with that. And to be honest, I don't think they're very helpful. They certainly haven't been in mine and my mother's case. 
When I look back at my mum's life, I feel sorry. She worked very hard on trying to maintain her health and still died tragically at a very young age due to poor healthcare interactions and negligence. I cringe when someone says to me, oh, we need more Indian doctors. The dark twist here is going back to my message in the trailer, as I said, do we understand communities different to our own? There is an assumption in wider conversations I've had that if your healthcare professionals are from the South Asian diaspora, they will culturally tailor the service to you. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's not to say if you were matched with someone directly from the same community to you, that they will do a better job. There's so many benefits to that for sure. But again, I personally think it comes back to providing a holistic service that is tailored to your individual needs. Well, folks, let's wish Priya love and continued success with the work she's doing with our communities. I hope you enjoyed the break in the usual format today. Until next time, take good care of yourself. I am your host, Kulsima Ali.